The following podcast contains adult themes and is suitable for mature audiences only. Hello and welcome to Lyrics of Their Life, the podcast that talks about the extraordinary lives lived by those that wrote or performed the songs we know and love. I'm your host Adam Hampton and in today's episode we jump right back into the story of ACDC right from where we left off. In part one we discovered what life was like growing up as Bon Scott and Malcolm and Angus Young and what the early days of forming ACDC looked like. Then in part two, we delved into the Bon Scott era of ACDC that saw them conquer the Australian and international market, and just as they began to conquer the US, tragedy struck and Bon was found deceased after a heavy night out drinking. This left the band with the tough decision of whether to continue on or quit altogether, with Bon's parents giving them the green light to continue. So if you haven't yet listened to part 1 or 2 yet, I highly recommend checking them out first. Without further ado, let's get straight into it. This is ACDC Part 3, The Brian Johnson Era. This is Lyrics of Their Life. As ACDC looked to fill the hole left by their charismatic frontman Bon Scott, they entered into a frustrating period of auditions, hoping to find the perfect fit for the band. Many different vocalists were linked to the band at the time by the media, including Alan Fryer of Australian band Fat Lip, Easy Beats lead vocalist and friend of the Young family Stevie Wright, Buzz Sherman of Moxie and Gary Pickford Hopkins, while Backstreet Crawlers Terry Slesser and Slade lead vocalist Noddy Holder both declined offers to join the band or were simply too close to Bon in terms of stage presence and vocal ability. A roadie from Birmingham, England named Stevie Burden also applied for the gig but didn't suit their style enough. So the Young Brothers called up their nephew Stevie Young who was in the process of forming a new band called Starfighters and sent him in that direction. But no matter who they auditioned, no one seemed to be fitting their vision. They seemed too similar to how Bon would sing and they didn't want to replace him with a cut copy. That was until their producer Mutt Lang happened to mention an Englishman named Brian Johnson, who Angus had actually heard Bon speak about once before as Brian had been performing in a British rock band named Geordie. As Angus was quoted as saying, I remember the first time I had ever heard Brian Johnson's name was from Bon. Bon had mentioned that he had been in England once, touring with a band, and he had mentioned that Brian had been in a band called Geordie, and Bon had said, Brian Johnson, he was a great rock and roll singer, in the style of Little Richard. And that was Bon's big idol, Little Richard. I think when he saw Brian at the time, to Bon, it was, well he's a guy that knows what rock and roll is all about. He mentioned that to us in Australia, I suppose when we decided to continue, Brian was the first name that Malcolm and myself came up with, so we said we should see if we can find him. As mentioned earlier in the podcast, 
Bon and Brian had actually spent a bit of time together when Bon toured the UK with Fraternity during the early 70s, even sharing a stage once with Brian's band Geordie. After the show, they shared a pint together before going their separate ways and never seeing each other again. Brian Johnson also remembers the first time he ever saw Bon pop up with ACDC, which was on TV on a show called Rock Goes to College, as he was quoted as saying, I was just transfixed with Angus and Bon, and these two guys were two of the greatest characters I've ever seen. Especially Angus, you know, his antics, and I was hooked. Brian said he became a big fan of their work, and that he really respected Bon as a frontman. During March 1980, Brian received a phone call from a German lady inviting him to come down to London to audition for the band. At the time, Brian was in his 30s, living five hours away from London in Newcastle in the UK, practically broke and living at home with his parents, and was just about to have a crack at starting his own automotive business when he got the call, as he is a huge car enthusiast. Brian had been performing for a number of years in the struggling rock and roll band Geordie, but he revealed at the time of the call he was getting ready to quit the band in a few weeks anyway to start his own business. Despite Brian Johnson being 32 years old, which was still younger than Bon was at the time of his death, Angus and Malcolm were keen to have Brian audition. At first Brian wondered if he should bother to make the long five to six hour journey down to London from Newcastle and thought what would ACDC actually want with him. But what actually sparked Brian into action was the fact that he was offered 350 quid to do a jingle for Hoover for a vacuum commercial on the very same day, just before the ACDC audition, which just so happened to be right across the street from the studio where he recorded the jingle. So he thought that could cover his fuel to get down to London and back, and he could kill two birds with one stone. When Brian got to London, he did the commercial, and then before heading to the audition, he sat down to have some lunch, almost psyching himself out about going across the street for the audition. But it was Brian's fate to cross the road that day, as he got up the courage and entered the building. According to Malcolm, Brian was supposed to come up straight away for the audition at a specific time, but when they sent someone to find him, as it had been quite a while, they discovered he was downstairs playing pool. As Malcolm was quoted as saying, We were all sitting there going, Where's this guy Brian? He should have been here an hour ago. Oh him? He's downstairs playing pool with the roadies. So we thought, well at least he plays pool. Finally it was time for Brian to audition, as he walked in to find four younger men, known as ACDC, seated on chairs looking miserable, after several failed auditions, and waiting for some time for Brian to arrive. According to Malcolm, Brian also seemed upset, and perhaps overwhelmed, as he respected Bon, and knew how big of a deal it was. As Malcolm was quoted as saying, he had tears in his eyes, he was as sad about Bon as we were, Straight away, Malcolm would reduce any tension and nerves in the room as he walked over to Brian and handed him a bottle of Newcastle Brown Ale, selected just for him, as they got drinking, had a laugh, and then decided to jam together. Malcolm continued to say, as the audition got underway, quote, We said, do you want to give it a go? And he said, I do whole lot of Rosie with Geordie, and off he went. We went, this guy is cutting the mustard. Anything else you know? Nutbush City Limits, okay, we can knock that out, 
and he sung that great too. It put a little smile on our faces for the first time since Bon, so we just started working with him then. When Brian Johnson reflected on the audition later on, he too remembered picking a favourite song of his, being Ike and Tina Turner's Nutbush City Limits, and remembers the boys being shocked by his song choices. Despite this, he quickly impressed the boys with his vocal range and his own style, charm, sense of humour and charisma that was much different to Bon, but just perfect for what ACDC were looking for. Brian remembers when he sung and they joined in on their instruments that he gave himself goosebumps, followed by eyes gazing at him in disbelief. It was at this moment Brian and possibly the band knew they had something special. After a great jam session, filled with plenty of laughs, Brian thanked the boys before heading for the door to leave, knowing he still had a long five-hour drive ahead of him back to his parents' house in Newcastle as he was set to open his auto shop in the coming days. That's when they all stopped him and yelled out, where are you going? You're in. Brian could feel they had something special, but he wasn't expecting it to be any bigger than what the band had already achieved, with Angus also expressing that Brian had what it took to hit all those high notes. With Malcolm saying, quote, there would never be another Bon, but Brian walked in one day for an audition, we just felt really comfortable with him. And again, he could sing his balls out. But first, let's get the background story on Brian Johnson. Brian Johnson was born Brian Francis Johnson on the 5th of October 1947 in the small working class area of Dunstan in the town of Gateshead in England in the Durham County, where he was also raised here. Brian was the oldest of four siblings. His mother was an Italian immigrant named Esther, from the city of Frascati, while his father Alan was an Englishman who worked as a coal miner before becoming a sergeant major for the British Army's Durham Light Infantry. As a child, Brian joined the local church choir and Boy Scouts and even appeared in a play that was shown on TV. He loved cars and football and supported Newcastle United FC who competed in the Premier League. When Brian got older, He too would serve his country as a volunteer in the Army Reserve or Territory Army with the Parachute Regiment. While in the Army Reserve, Brian who grew up loving music decided to join a number of bands called Gobi Desert Canoe Club and Fresh before settling down and getting married in 1968 to a woman named Carol. Almost instantly, Carol fell pregnant and that same year they welcomed their first child into the world naming her Joanne. Believe it or not, Brian was also a member of a cabaret band called the Jasper Heart Band in 1970 at the age of 23, as Brian had always been a fan of theatre. Together, Brian and his bandmates played in clubs to soft rock and ballads, as well as songs from the musical Hair. With some of the band members, Brian went on to form Geordie in 1972, where he helped co-write a number of songs with guitarist Vic Malcolm and became their lead vocalist. Then in 1973, Carol and Brian welcomed their second child into the world, naming her Carla. That same year, Geordie recorded and released their debut album, titled Hope You Like It, under Repertoire Records, followed by Don't Be Fooled By The Name in 1974 under the same label, both of which were in the style of glam rock. They then scored a record deal with EMI and then changed their style to harder rock 
releasing two further albums called Save the World in 1976 and No Good Woman in 1978. Fast forward to 1980, age 32, and Brian decided to take up the offer from ACDC, leaving behind Geordie, his job as a windshield fitter, and his ambition to run his own car yard. By April 1980, Brian had officially joined, and within days of his audition, he was boarding a plane with Angus, Malcolm, Phil Rudd, and Cliff Williams to the Bahamas, as they would jump into the studio at Compass Point Studio in Nassau for just six weeks to produce, write, and record ACDC's biggest, most successful release of their career, known as Back in Black, with producer Mutt Lang. The idea to head to the Bahamas was raised by their manager to avoid the soaring tax rates at the time, along with studios in the UK being fully booked out, despite the band actually wanting to record it in the UK. When they arrived to record the album, however, the Bahamas happened to be experiencing a number of intense tropical storms, which apparently interrupted the band's recording time due to electrical blackouts, while their equipment was slow to arrive from the UK as it was held up in customs. As Brian was quoted as saying, It was hardly any kind of studio. We were in these little concrete cells, comfy mind you, had a bed and a chair, and this big old black lady ran the whole place. Oh, she was fearsome. She ruled that place with a rod of iron. We had to lock the doors at night because she'd warned us about these Hadians who'd come down at night and robbed the place. So she bought us all these six-foot fishing spears to keep at the fucking door. It was a bit of a stretch from Newcastle, I can tell ya. For Brian, it was a very stressful experience as he was looking to impress and felt the pressure of being the new guy and the terrible weather and strange unfamiliar territory made matters worse. In order to get everything perfect, Mutt Lang demanded perfection from Brian knowing that in order for this album to be a success with a new lead singer, that Brian had to be right on his game with no exceptions. As Brian recalled about Mutt Lang, quote, It was like, again Brian, again, hold on, you sang that note too long, so there's no room for a breath. He wouldn't let anything go past him. He had this thing where he didn't want people to listen to the album and say there's no way someone could sing that. They've dropped that in, even the breaths had to be in the right place. And he could not knock a man for that, but he drove me nuts. Despite the issues, Brian later claimed, quote, It was probably the most magical time in my life. I knew something was happening, but it was happening so quick that I couldn't grasp it. In order to pay their respects to Bon, no lyrics or writings of Bon's were used on the album, as they didn't want to feel like they had made a profit off of his death without him there to confirm what they should or shouldn't use. This was despite some claiming that some of Bond's lyrics were used, but this was denied by the band. Brian was fearful of how the ACDC fans would react to him, being the new lead singer, filling the shoes of the much-loved Bond Scott. But he always maintained that he was not there to replace Bond, and was determined to carry on his legacy, as he was quoted as saying, I was never brought in to replace Bond. I was brought in because Bond was there no more, except in spirit. Brian Johnson would make his long-awaited debut as the new lead singer of ACDC on the 29th of June 1980 in Namur, Belgium. As ACDC debuted songs from their upcoming seventh studio album, as well as the title track, Back in Black. From June 1980 through to the release of Back in Black, 
and even afterwards, they toured Belgium and the Netherlands before taking on Canada. During these shows, he even debuted his now iconic look that he would continue to this very day by wearing a hat known as a newsboy or baker boy cap that was lent to him by his brother to keep the sweat out of his eyes, off of his curly hair, as it would get in his eyes and sting while performing. As Brian often got quite sweaty on stage as he put everything into his performances. The look stuck, so Brian never gave it back to his brother, as he was quoted as saying, He said, put it on, at least you'll be able to see what the bloody freak you're doing. So I put it on, and after three songs in the second set, I looked at him, put my thumbs up, and said this is brilliant. He never did get that hat back. When looking back at the time, Phil Rudd stated that they often thought about Bond during the recording process, and when they were playing live, but they were very determined to prove that they could still do it. Brian was quoted as saying, I remember going up there and just crossing my fingers and just belting my lungs out as high and as hard as I could, with as much feeling as I could. I mean, I wanted to impress these guys. Malcolm remembered the first gig with Brian well and was quoted as saying, First concert he was nervous about singing Bond's songs and hoping he could do them justice. He did fine. It was an extremely tough role to fill for Brian, and he couldn't help but worry what the fans were thinking, or how they thought he was doing. With Malcolm quoted as saying, Brian was very worried at the time, but we thought, you just hang in there Brian, you just do what you do best. On the 25th of July, 1980, history would be made when Back in Black was released to the world. Brian shared the co-writing of the 10-track double-sided album that would catapult the band into the rock and roll legend status and cement their notoriety as household names in the US and worldwide. From the album's release to 1981, ACDC's Back in Black went to number one in Australia, France, Canada and the UK, becoming their first number one album anywhere. It also reached number three in Germany, four in the US and six in Austria. Over time, it would become one of the best-selling albums worldwide of all time and has since sold 25 million copies in the US alone, going 25 times platinum, a monstrous effort from the boys from Australia. Considering they had been a successful band with Bon as their lead singer and then continued on to go to the next level with a new lead singer was simply incredible and no band in history has been able to achieve such a feat, unlike ACDC. The Aussie Hard Rockers currently sit second of all time on the bestsellers list with Back in Black, with 29 million confirmed copies sold around the world, and an estimated 50 million copies sold in total, putting them just behind the king of pop Michael Jackson with his incredible Thriller album, with 48.9 million copies confirmed and an estimated 67 million sold worldwide. Which is quite a feat for ACDC, considering Michael Jackson's album includes the tracks Thriller, Beat It, Billie Jean, Wanna Be Startin' Something, The Girl Is Mine with Paul McCartney, and many more epic tracks. While Back in Black also sits in front of the likes of Meatloaf with Bat Out of Hell, Whitney Houston with The Bodyguard, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, and The Eagles with their Greatest Hits album. For this moment in time, ACDC were the biggest and most successful heavy rock and roll band in the world, 
with Led Zeppelin at the time disbanding and the likes of the Rolling Stones, Kiss and Black Sabbath all on breaks or losing their audience with ballads or underachieving albums. It was the perfect time for ACDC to strike on the market. Angus also revealed that the almost completely black album cover was in mourning to Bon Scott and to pay their respects as you would at a funeral by commonly wearing black. Atlantic Records of course had an issue with this but after Angus told them to stick it up their ass, they agreed as long as they could include a grey bordering around their band name and the title of the album. The huge sounding album kicks off with Hell's Bells, one of the best from the album, as the tolling of the bells ring out from the beginning of the track as an ominous tribute to the fallen Bon Scott, almost like how the church bells ring out at a funeral. Angus then chimes in with a dark and sombre but memorable guitar riff, followed by Phil Rudd on drums. Soon enough, the listeners get the opportunity to hear what Brian Johnson has to offer on vocals, and he sure doesn't disappoint. His howling screams and exceptional rock vocals work wonders. He is no Bon Scott, and doesn't have that devilish charm that Bon expressed so often, but simply is his own man, and is great in his own right. ACDC are back, and it's almost like Bon was still there with them, in spirit. During live performances of the track Hell's Bells, a huge bell labelled with ACDC's logo, and called the Hell's Bell, could be seen dangling down from the top of the stage, as Brian would come running out to open the show by jumping onto the tongue of the bell, or also known as the clapper, and start swinging on it, as Brian tolls the bell. It's believed only once did he fall from the bell when attempting to ring it. When recording the bell sound for the song, they wanted an authentic, realistic-sounding bell instead of a pre-recorded sample, so they sourced one out only to continually meet dead ends. On one occasion, they visited a church and recorded a church bell only to become frustrated when they picked up the sound of fluttering wings after the bell was tolled as a group of doves had been living inside it, and as soon as they rang the bell, they would fly off, then return, and so on. This led to ACDC having their very own 2,000 pound bronze bell, designed specifically for them, and it was brought into the studio for recording. The album as a whole was dedicated to Bon, but this song especially was for Bon, as he was well known for being a hellraiser and a wild man. Brian actually included the lines that referenced the experience he had when they first arrived in the Bahamas, as they had trouble adjusting to the environment and the bad weather with tropical storms interrupting their sessions, with rain pouring down and thunder so loud that they couldn't even hear themselves, which is evident in the opening lines of Hell's Bells, where Brian sings, I'm rolling thunder, pouring rain, I'm coming on like a hurricane. My lightning's flashing across the sky. You're only young, but you're gonna die. When Brian wrote the song, Brian told Q Magazine that it was actually quite a spooky and supernatural experience that he'll never forget, as he believes his hand started scribbling uncontrollably as if it was possessed, as he was quoted as saying, I don't believe in God or heaven or hell, but something happened. We had these little rooms like cells with a bed and a toilet, no TVs. I had this big sheet of paper and I had to write some words. And I'll never forget, I started writing and never stopped. And that was it. Hell's bells. I had a bottle of whiskey and I just went. I kept the light on all night, man. 
with Brian's experience, who knows? Did Bon help pen the lyrics for Brian in spirit? Or was it just the spirits he was drinking doing the talking? This, however, would be just one of many spiritual experiences like this for Brian, with bass player Cliff Williams quoted as saying, I remember Brian remarked a couple of times how it was kind of eerie for him. The song Have a Drink on Me would also serve as a tribute to Bon, as a form of toast to Bon, as he of course loved a drink. Following Hell's Bells on the album is the track Shoot to Thrill, as Brian uses the phrase as a sexualized play on words to describe male ejaculation in relation to the lyrics that read, Pulling the Trigger. Despite the track not becoming a commercial hit, it did however become a fan favourite and received mass airplay on radio with its high energy rock and roll flow. Brian attempted to write the song with Bond's lyrical style in mind, describing a wild man, sex and drugs and compared it to his vision of Bond's dirty deeds. A similar track to this, titled Give the Dog a Bone, sees Brian utilising this method once again as he refers to a woman performing oral sex on him. While Let Me Put My Love Into You is pretty self-explanatory when running with these sexualized themes, with the lyrics reading, Let me put my love into you, babe let me cut your cake with my knife. Next up is What Do You Do For Money Honey, as Brian questions how the woman in question makes her cash so easily, only to realize that instead of working, she hooks up with rich men and uses them for their wealth. The song, however, would rarely be played live during the 80s and 90s and was placed back onto the set list during the early 2000s. The song Rock and Roll Ain't No Noise Pollution managed to chart at number 15 in both the UK and Irish charts and was written by Malcolm and Angus in the space of just 15 minutes. When Atlantic Records advised the band that they needed another single as they only had nine tracks so far for the album with Malcolm claiming that the inspiration for the song came from, quote, We were in London at the time, and there were all these problems with the old Marquee Club, because it was in a built-up area, and there was this whole thing about noise pollution in the news. The environmental health thing, that you couldn't have your stereo up loud after 11 at night. It all came from that. The two biggest tracks that were released on the Back in Black album, however, were also released as singles, titled You Shook Me All Night Long and Back in Black. You Shook Me All Night Long was released on the 19th of August 1980 and became a huge hit in Australia, reaching number 8, and despite only making it to number 35 in the US and 38 in the UK, it was very popular, especially on radio, selling close to 4 million copies of the single worldwide. Just like the greats had done before him like the Rolling Stones and Robert Johnson, Brian infused his love of cars and compared them to attractive women, as he sings the now iconic lines, and arguably what was some of Brian's best so far, quote, She was a fast machine, she kept her motor clean, she was the best damn woman that I've ever seen. She had the sightless eyes, telling me no lies, knocking me out with those American thighs, taking more than her share, had me fighting for air, she told me to come, but I was already there. Cause the walls start shaking, the earth was quaking, my mind was aching, and we were making it, and you, shook me all night long. When writing the track, Angus and Malcolm actually came up with the title, and asked Brian to put lyrics to their guitar riff, which of course would go down as one of the best and most critically acclaimed of the Young Brothers careers. 
It was also the first to be written by Brian for the new album, as Brian was quoted as saying, The boys had a title. Malcolm and Angus said, Listen, we've got this song. It's called Shook Me All Night Long. That's what we want the song to be called. And if you listen to the chords, it just fell into place. So I can't claim any credit on that thing. It was as quick as it had to be, which was that night. It was just a thing that came at the time, and I still think it's one of the greatest rock and roll riffs I've ever heard in my life. Then comes one of the greatest Aussie rock anthems of all time, Back in Black, which was released on the 21st of December, 1980. Remembered for arguably the most simple but catchiest riffs of all time, Angus Young with his incredible solo, and Brian's lyrics that celebrate the wild man Bon Scott for exactly who he was, It would go down as a very impactful and important song to rock and roll history, being the very first song Kurt Cobain and many other musicians first learnt to play on guitar, while even artists such as Eminem claim it was the first song they ever listened to. When Malcolm Young came up with the riff years earlier on the Highway to Hell tour as a warm-up riff during rehearsals, Angus was quoted as saying, Malcolm asked me if this riff he had was too funky, and I said, Well, if you're going to discard it, give it to me. Angus then decided the album should be titled Back in Black, with the song also resembling this name in honour of Bon, which Brian then added further lyrics to the track. When asked to put lyrics to the riff, Brian claimed they didn't want anything sombre or depressing, just something uplifting that captured Bon's personality. So Brian wrote anything that came to his mind, and he was quoted as saying, They said it can't be morbid. It has to be for Bon, and it has to be a celebration. I thought, well, no pressure there then. I just wrote what came into my head, which at the time seemed like mumbo-jumbo. Nine lives, cat eyes, abusing every one of them and running wild. The boys got it, though. They saw Bon's life in that lyric. Back in Black, while remembered as one of ACDC's best hits, wasn't so much so on the charts, only making it to number 37 on the US Billboard Hot 100, despite being a huge radio hit and selling close to 4 million copies of the single. The lyrics suggest that Bond never actually died, and that he has at least 9 lives, like they say a cat does. It's possible that Brian is referring to Bond being there with the band in spirit, after a couple of paranormal experiences that Brian simply couldn't explain, and that perhaps he is helping push the band in a certain direction, as the lyrics read, Back in black, I hit the sack, I've been too long, I'm glad to be back. Yes, I'm let loose, from the noose, that's keeping me hanging about. Meaning Bon passed away, referring to the Aussie slang word for going to sleep by hitting the sack, Then Bon rises again after watching the band struggle with his loss. Brian continues on as he sings, I've been looking at the sky, cause it's getting me high. Forget the hearse, cause I never die. Hearse referring to the car that carries the coffin and that Bon doesn't need it as he is immortal. He is always with them in spirit. Brian continues with, I got nine lives, cat eyes, abusing every one of them and running wild. In this line, Bond's spirit will never be broken. He is the same as he was in life, on the other side. A wild party boy, living recklessly. With Brian showing he could write brilliant lyrics and pay tribute to Bond, many fans came around on the idea of Brian as the new frontman, and they were as popular as ever. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. 
Hi everyone, and sorry to interrupt. I hope you're enjoying this episode, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you four ways on how you can support the podcast and play your part in keeping it going, so I can continue to bring you more great episodes. If you enjoy Lyrics of Their Life podcast, first of all it would be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It's totally free to do. It just means that you will receive a notification when a new episode of the podcast becomes available. Secondly, you can leave the podcast a positive five-star review on iTunes as this helps the podcast reach a larger audience. Third of all, you can tell your friends all about the podcast or join us on our social media pages at Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. While finally, you can take your support one step further and head to our Patreon page and pledge your support to one of two of our plans for just $1 or $5 per month with no locking contract. Or you can pledge just a one-off payment for all the hard work that goes into creating the podcast. And you will receive a number of extra benefits to go with your donation. Or you can even buy me a beer for $5 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash lyrics of life pod. I am a totally independent podcast creator meaning there are no large networks or businesses financially supporting my work. So your support would be greatly appreciated, as it means I can continue creating more content, such as biographies, the weekly muse, interviews, and more, as it takes a lot of time, resources, and research to prepare and upload just one single episode. Links to Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found in the show notes on our website at lyricsoftheirlife.com or on our Facebook page. Once again, I appreciate every one of my listeners for their support, no matter the form it comes in. Thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the episode. From late July and early August to mid-October 1980, ACDC had been on a long and extensive tour of the US, playing at auditoriums, stadiums, arenas and venues of all shapes and sizes across the country. They had never been bigger and their stage design and production had never been so huge as they also implemented pyrotechnics into their shows for the very first time, making their high energy performances even more explosive. Next on the tour was the UK in October through to November followed by Europe from November 1980 to January 1981. Then they toured Japan for the first time, and for the first time in years, ACDC returned to Australia to perform on home soil for the remainder of February 1981. For Brian Johnson, this was the most nerve-wracking performances yet, as he was worried about how the Aussie fans would react to his appointment, with the much-loved Bon Scott not there anymore. It was, however, a huge success. While in Australia, the band took a quick break to meet up with their families before heading over to Paris at Mobile One Studios to record the band's eighth studio album with producer Mutt Lang. The hype around the band at the time was huge and expectation was starting to weigh them down as they were expected to match or better the success of Back in Black, which was no easy feat and was no doubt a near impossible challenge that is rarely achieved. ACDC were in the studio until September, and due to Atlantic Records putting increased pressure on them to produce hits, they struggled to get the job done quickly, forcing them to cancel many shows in Canada and the US, and having to reschedule them for the album's new release date, after having to change this also. Then on the 23rd of November, 1981, 
ACDC released their follow-up to Back in Black, titled, For Those About to Rock, We Salute You. The album became their first number one album in the US, but it struggled commercially in comparison to Back in Black, which to this day sold just 6 million copies worldwide. For Those About to Rock also reached number three in Australia and two in Germany, but lacked the powerful hard rock singles that made Back in Black so great. The first single from the album, titled Let's Get It Up, was released in December 1981, and despite a solid blues-style riff from Angus, the track failed to take off. Then on the 22nd of March, 1982, ACDC released their second single from the album, called For Those About to Rock, We Salute You, which reached number 15 in the UK and 4 on the US rock chart. Often when the song is played live, cannon props will set off during the show, shooting out fireworks, similar to the one seen on the album cover. Angus said he got the idea when watching Princess Diana's royal wedding when they were in the early stages of putting the track together, as he was quoted as saying, Someone had the wedding on in the next room. We were playing that part of the song when the cannons were going off, and we paused a second and went, Hmm, that actually sounds pretty good. This would prove to be the last album that Mutt Lang would produce for the band after producing their previous three albums, Highway to Hell, Back in Black, and now for those about to rock, as Mutt Lang would go on to produce for the Cars, Def Leppard, Brian Adams, and his soon-to-be wife, Shania Twain. ACDC instead decided that they would produce their ninth studio album for themselves for the very first time, with Angus and Malcolm calling all the shots. After For Those About To Rock, the boys just wanted to get back to basics and the music they enjoyed playing. And in order to recapture that feeling they had when they recorded Back In Black, they decided to board a plane back to the Bahamas at Compass Point Studios. Recording for their new upcoming ninth studio album called Flick Of The Switch would take place during April 1983. Things started off well, with Malcolm really wanting to push the band for a more raw sound without overproduction, and this time they happened to have a recording experience free of any tropical storms. But drama would strike again when ACDC drummer Phil Rudd was let go from the band after a number of indiscretions involving personal problems and issues with Malcolm himself that reportedly turned physical at times. Phil had been struggling over the years, first with a breakdown on the 1978 Power Age tour, which was highlighted by Bon in a letter he wrote to his sister Valerie at the time, then with the loss of Bon Scott, which he didn't take very well, and it appeared some other issues, such as drugs and burnout due to the touring schedule, also played a part in his retirement. After around eight years with the band, Phil Rudd went on to marry New Zealand woman Lisa O'Brien during 1983, where the couple went on to have five children together. Phil decided to go on a break from the music industry, residing in New Zealand with his family, where he ran his own helicopter charter company. Phil was quoted as saying during his break, I raced cars, flew helicopters, became a farmer and planted some crops. I lived in New Zealand which was great. Nice and quiet, with nobody bothering me. Phil also claimed that he continued to play the drums in his pastime and build his own recording studio. Angus came out in the press at the time and claimed there was no fighting going on between the band, despite their issues. While Brian Johnson spoke about Phil by saying, 
You couldn't find a more solid person or drummer than Phil Rudd. None of us would have to work if we didn't want to. Phil chose that option. Phil's departure from the band caused quite some trouble as a number of shows had to be postponed and the search for a new drummer began. English drummer BJ Wilson came in to play as a session drummer for the band and although he recorded a couple of tracks with ACDC, they weren't utilised on the album as Phil had completed all the songs they needed for the album anyway before his departure. ACDC auditioned an estimated 700 drummers including Simon Kirk of Free and Bad Company and Paul Thompson of Roxy Music. But instead, in came another Englishman named Simon Wright who joined the band from Dio as their new permanent drummer. Just a month before he turned 20 years old in May 1983 and would go on to tour with them and appear in their music videos for the album. On the 15th of August 1983, ACDC's ninth studio album, Flick of the Switch, was released to the world, and despite charting at number 3 in Australia, the top 10 in 7 countries including the UK and New Zealand, and number 15 in the US, it was a commercial flop and was panned by critics as it struggled to sell more than 2 million copies worldwide. The themes of the album carried on from their past, including sex, drugs and wild behaviour, which appeared to become stale to some listeners, resulting in shows struggling to sell out in different places around the globe, which led to Malcolm sacking their tour manager Ian Jeffrey as the band seemingly started to lose the plot, sacking everyone left, right and centre, as well as their photographer. The singles from the album, titled Guns For Hire and Nervous Shakedown, while they were solid rock tunes, they lacked substance and those witty lyrics that saw them be successful in the past. Both singles failed to chart successfully, only just cracking the top 40 in the UK and seeing no top 40 action in the US or Australia at all. Sadly, this would begin a run of underwhelming success for ACDC, as well as Malcolm battling problems with alcoholism. And despite all this, many fans stuck through the tough times with them as they loved and appreciated them for sticking to their guns and never straying for a different or more popular sound. Angus said this was something he was proud of and that he wanted people to know when they chucked on an ACDC record or heard them on the radio that instantly they would know exactly what band they were listening to. Throughout the remainder of 1983 and throughout 1984, ACDC toured extensively with Brian, Angus, Malcolm, Cliff Williams and Simon Wright, mainly touring the States and Canada, followed by shorter tours of the UK and Europe. It was now clear to see by this point, however, that the Australian audience was totally being ignored. The UK audience was slowly being phased out and the US was now the primary focus. On October 15th, 1984, ACDC released an American-targeted EP titled 74 Jailbreak, which included five tracks that were previously only available in Australia. These tracks included Baby Please Don't Go and Jailbreak. The EP was a hit in the US and sold one million copies, landing Bond's Jailbreak on the rock radio stations for some time. From October 1984 to January 1985, ACDC were in and out of the studio in Montreux, Switzerland, recording their 10th studio album, titled Fly on the Wall, with Angus and Malcolm solely producing the album once again. 
To promote the new album, they took a three-week break during the recording process and performed in Brazil for the first time for the 10-day Rock in Rio festival in January 1985. It was here where they performed as a headliner on two of the nights for a sea of over 250,000 people alongside Whitesnake, Ozzy Osbourne and the Scorpions. Then on the 17th of March 1985, ACDC would be cursed with a string of bad luck when they were roped into allegations of encouraging rapist and serial killer Richard Ramirez. This was because Richard Ramirez had left behind a hat displaying the ACDC logo on it which was left at the crime scene and sent to the media via the police in the hopes they would help identify the killer. But instead, as the media do, they ran with the story and blew it out of proportion. This story quickly hit the papers and was combined with a story from a friend of the serial killer claiming Ramirez was also a big fan of ACDC with the song Night Prowler written by Bon Scott and the Young Brothers said to have been influential on his killing spree. Ramirez was yet to be formally identified at this stage of the investigation so the media started calling him the Night Stalker similar to the ACDC track Night Prowler causing a lot of confusion around their band's name, their morals, and questioning the grim lyrics of the Night Prowler song, such as the lines, Somewhere a clock strikes midnight, and there's a full moon in the sky. You hear a dog bark in the distance, you hear someone's baby cry. A rat runs down the alley, and a chill runs down your spine. And someone walks across your grave, and you wish the sun would shine. Cause no one's gonna warn you, and no one's going to yell. Attack, and you don't feel the steel till it's hanging out your back. I'm your night prowler, asleep in the day. Night prowler, get out of my way. Yeah, I'm the night prowler, watch out tonight. Yes, I'm the night prowler, when you turn out the light. Too scared to turn your light out, cause there's something on your mind. Was that a noise outside the window? What's that shadow on the blind? As you lie there naked, like a body in a tomb, suspended animation as I slip into your room. This unwanted scandal would interrupt ACDC's gigging schedule as they were forced to cancel any touring plans and it came at a terrible time as they were just about to release their next album. On the 28th of June 1985, ACDC released their 10th studio album, Fly on the Wall, but yet again, it was another disappointing release perhaps partly due to the stigma around the band at the time. Fly on the Wall performed almost identically with Flick of the Switch, charting at number 4 in Australia and 7 in the UK, but only made it to number 32 in the US, and struggled to sell close to 2 million copies worldwide. It was Simon Wright's debut album on drums, replacing Australian-born Phil Rudd, meaning it was the first time in ACDC's history that they were a fully UK-born band, sadly losing part of their Aussie identity. With this album, Malcolm and Angus had attempted to capture the band's early sound, but it just didn't connect the way they had hoped, and it was once again panned by the critics. Despite the band struggling to produce a commercially successful album, since For Those About To Rock and Back In Black, the tracks Shake Your Foundations and Sink The Pink became fan favourites that are still popular today. As ACDC did their best to promote their new album, it was always going to be difficult, with the dark cloud of a link to a mass serial killer hanging over them. The media were having a frenzy with the story, which was one of the biggest stories at the time around the world, 
and crazy headlines linking the band to the killer and his motives continued on for months, taking its toll on the band. After Richard Ramirez, aka the Night Prowler, raped and murdered around 16 victims, or more, and injured many more in the process, from June 1984 to August 1985, he was finally arrested after Ramirez was identified and the community of California were aware of what he looked like. He was finally captured on the 31st of August 1985 after being caught by a group of civilians after he had attempted to hijack a number of cars. ACDC were dragged further into the mud by the media with a newspaper headline at the time claiming that Richard was quoted as saying, ACDC music made me kill 16. As a furious Malcolm was quoted as saying, I thought it was a joke at first, this is crazy, why are we connected anyway? The media superanalyzed the lyrics of Night Prowler, connecting dots, but Malcolm and Angus maintained it was more of a light-hearted song about sneaking into your girlfriend's window of a night, despite obvious more darker lyrics being glaringly obvious. And Angus also told the story relating to the creatures that like to hang out by his bedroom window of a night. And while yes, it does contain some disturbing lyrics, the song was written many years ago. But again, it wasn't ACDC's fault, some nutjob decided to commit terrible crimes based off of a song's lyrics. ACDC was sickened and frustrated by the connections, especially when the media and Christian lobby protest groups decided that ACDC must be Satanists. They even pushed the notion that ACDC stood for Antichrist Devil's Children and that the lightning bolt must represent an S for Satan, despite all their efforts to tell the media and the protesters about the simple sewing machine story, where their name originated from. Ultimately, it would affect the band's image going forward as they were labelled as devil worshippers by some and the Parents Music Resource Centre, or PMRC, led by US Senators' wives, placed ACDC at the top of their list for artists they deemed offensive, disgusting and not for children's ears. From this point on, PMRC proposed to bring in a rating system similar to the one used in the film industry as a way to limit access to albums for underage listeners from content such as violence, drugs, sex, alcohol and satanic and occult references. In the end, the PMRC were only able to get an explicit content warning label placed on certain albums and only one of ACDC's songs, titled Let Me Put My Love Into You, actually made it onto the PMRC's list of disgusting and degrading songs, known as the Filthy 15, despite many well and truly being able to qualify, including Night Prowler. Other tracks that joined the Filthy 15 included Prince's Darling Nikki, she Bop by Cindy Lauper and We're Not Gonna Take It by Twisted Sister, who were one of the loudest voices against the PMRC proposals. The allegations of the Night Stalker case would sadly loom over the band for three more long dark years, as Ramirez wouldn't appear in court until July 1988, with more allegations still to come their way. The link to the Night Stalker would seriously impact on the mental health of the band members who struggled with the unfair press they received, but over time they decided there was nothing they could do about it, so they just got on with doing what they loved, playing good rock music. After pausing live gigs since January 1985 at Rock in Rio, 
ACDC returned to the stage in September 1985 to play around the US, promoting the Fly on the Wall album until the end of the year. And despite the stigma, they still managed to draw a crowd and sell out shows everywhere. Then into January 1986, ACDC returned to the UK and Europe for more gigs once again, leaving Australia waiting for their chance to see their homegrown heroes return, with many feeling the band had simply turned their back on them completely. On the 24th of May 1986, ACDC released a compilation soundtrack album titled Who Made Who for the Stephen King film Maximum Overdrive, a film based on his short story Trucks, where robots and machines come to life to take over humanity and kill people, which is what the song Who Made Who is generally all about, despite a slight difference in the lyrics referring to technology, such as devices and gadgets ruling over humans and taking over our lives. Who Made Who was a return to form for ACDC, with a classic sound emanating from the track, with the return of Harry Vander and George Young as the track's producers. Who Made Who rose to number 9 in Australia, 7 in Norway and 16 in the UK, while also becoming a popular track on radio in the US. Other songs included on the soundtrack were Bon Scott's Ride On, two instrumentals titled DT and Chase the Ace, as well as hits like You Shook Me All Night Long and other well-known tracks from over the years. It was a smart move by ACDC as they managed to sell over 6 million copies of the soundtrack. It was their best commercial performance in years. Then ACDC's obsession with the USA and Canada continued as they played from July to September 1986, raking in the dough while they could. This last show in the US in New York on the 19th of September 1986 would prove to be the band's last for over a year as the band appeared to go on a bit of a break with some members appearing to be burnt out as they managed to stay out of the spotlight for almost a whole year. This extended break would be their longest yet since forming the band back in the early 70s. Then during July 1987, ACDC returned to the Miravel studio in Corrins in the south of France, where they conducted writing sessions for their 11th studio album. Then in the same French studio, from August to September 1987, ACDC recorded their upcoming album that would be titled Blow Up Your Video, with Harry Vander and George Young returning as the full-time producers for the band once again. George had noticed upon returning to work with ACDC during these sessions that his brother Malcolm was struggling more than ever with his drinking problem, noticing it was bordering on deadly, as he told Rolling Stone magazine much later in 2008, quote, I saw the signs. Malcolm had a problem. I said if he didn't get his act together, I was out of there, but I don't recall it having any effect. Brian Johnson this time around would play a major role in writing on the album, having a hand in all ten tracks, as well as Malcolm and Angus playing smaller co-writing roles. On the 18th of January 1988, Blow Up Your Video was released to the world and managed to make it to number two in Australia and the UK, the top five in five other countries including Germany and New Zealand and 12 in the US on their Billboard 200 chart. While it sold better than their previous two releases combined, it was yet again another disappointing album that limped past the 2 million album sales mark. 
It was panned by the critics, who called most of the album filler, and criticised the basic and stale lyrical style of Brian Johnson. But they noted that it was saved by Malcolm and Angus's expertise on guitar. During February 1988, ACDC felt the love again from Australia when they were inducted into the Australian Recording Industry Association's Hall of Fame, bringing them some much-needed positive news. With this induction, they kicked off their first Australian tour since Back in Black in Perth, Western Australia on the 1st of February 1988, which was further promoted by the album's first and most successful single. This single was Heat Seeker, and it was released during late January, early February 1988, and it would be the album's saving grace with a positive performance on the mainstream charts, reaching the top 5 in Sweden and Norway, and 12 in the UK, as well as being a remotely different sounding track that appeared much more fresh and vibrant compared to the rest of the album. Despite the criticism from the critics, many fans claim this was an underappreciated album and that it signalled the beginning of a new era for the band. After around 14 shows in Australia during February, they returned to the UK and Europe for a number of shows during the months of March and April, only for Malcolm to realise that he needed to take a step back from the band to work on his alcohol issues, as he really struggled to keep himself together, reaching an all-time low in his life. Malcolm was known to enjoy a Jack Daniels and Coke, and after recently increasing his drinking habits, the alcohol was said to have started to take over him, just like Bon. Bon's alcohol-related death still haunted Malcolm, and those around him, including himself, were worried that he would meet the same tragic fate as his good mate. Malcolm had asked Angus while on tour, quote, How would you feel if I took a break? Angus, of course, was more concerned about his brother's welfare than the band and insisted he takes a break. Malcolm felt guilty for letting his band down but knew it was the right thing to do as he said, quote, I wasn't brain dead but I was physically and mentally screwed by the alcohol. The 13th of April 1988 at Wembley Arena in London would be Malcolm's last show for now with the band taking a short two-week break to organise a short-term replacement before hitting the road again to complete their tour. On the 3rd of May 1988, ACDC emerged once again, performing in Portland in the US, with Angus and Malcolm's nephew, Stevie Young Jr., filling in for Malcolm. Stevie Young was the son of Angus and Malcolm's oldest brother, Stephen Young, who was known for teaching his little brothers a thing or two on guitar back when they were younger. Stevie Jr. and his brother Fraser Young were known to travel occasionally on tour with their uncles and were often photographed backstage with them. At first, some fans were said to have been unaware that Malcolm had even left the band due to the uncanny resemblance to his nephew Stevie, who was barely a year older than Angus and three years younger than Malcolm. Stevie had been close with ACDC and his uncles over the years, hanging out with them backstage on tour and working on his own band, Starfighters, with Malcolm working with Starfighters on production in recent years. So Stevie was the obvious choice to slot right in, being a great guitarist in his own right and, of course, keeping the family tradition running. In the meantime, Malcolm worked on getting his life together and trying to remain sober by attending AA meetings and eventually quitting alcohol altogether, feeling the best he had in a long time, which then led him to pick up the guitar once again and reclaim his passion. 
It was very strong and courageous of Malcolm to admit he had a problem with the drink. Malcolm also wanted to continue to be a good father and husband to his wife Linda, so getting off the drink was exactly what he needed. And that the realisation that he too could end up like Bon woke him right up. Malcolm described this period as a detour in his life, and with enough therapy and time away from the gruelling touring schedule, he was just about ready to return. On July 22, 1988, the case of serial killer Richard Ramirez was brought before the courts for the first time in three years, as ACDC faced more media heat regarding their alleged influence on the Night Stalker. It was during the case where Richard Ramirez raised his hand, displaying a pentagram symbol carved into his hand and was quoted as saying, Hail Satan, which brought about more unfair links between ACDC and the Night Stalker, although these links luckily faded off over time. Richard Ramirez was sentenced a year later in September 1989 on 13 counts of murder, five attempted murders, 11 sexual assaults, and 14 burglaries, and was placed on death row, set to be placed into a gas chamber. However, Richard Ramirez, aged 53, died in prison in 2013, and after 23 years on death row, after a number of health conditions got the better of him, he would never meet his sentence of being placed in the gas chamber. Once this case was closed, ACDC were glad to leave it in the past and were looking at moving on to more positive times. During November 1989, however, ACDC drummer Simon Wright decided to part ways with the band to rejoin with fellow rock band Dio to record their new album, Lock Up The Wolves, after recording three albums with ACDC. Replacing Simon Wright that same month was Welsh-born drummer Chris Slade, who had worked in the past with Tom Jones, Gary Newman, Dave Gilmore of Pink Floyd, Gary Moore, Olivia Newton-John, Manfred Mann's Earth Band and The Firm, which included bandmates Jimmy Page and Paul Rogers. Chris Slade was only supposed to be a temporary band member, but managed to stay on for the recording of their 12th studio album. Next time on the ACDC story, we wrap up the band's incredible journey as we take a look at the 90s resurgence of ACDC, beginning with their Razor's Edge album and all the major milestones and events the band has endured up to this point today, including the very sad loss of founding member Malcolm Young and Brian Johnson's battle to remain on the stage. All that and more coming your way next time on Lyrics of Their Life podcast. Thank you for tuning into that episode. Don't forget to check out our other episodes from season one and two, ranging from Kurt Cobain and Freddie Mercury to Prince, Chasey Chapman and Stevie Nicks, and up and comers like Youngblood, Tones and I, and The Kid Leroy. For more information regarding this episode, including weekly updates and more, head to our Facebook page at Lyrics of Their Life Podcast or our website at lyricsofthairlife.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and even YouTube and Spotify, where you can find a range of playlists featuring the music of every artist covered in the Lyrics of Their Life podcast so far. 
If you really enjoy the podcast and would like to give back for the hard work that goes into it, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes, or you can now rate the podcast on Spotify. Don't forget to let your friends and family know about what they've been missing out on, and feel free to click the free subscribe or follow button to the podcast wherever you listen, so you can receive a notification every time a new episode becomes available. If you would like to support the podcast financially, then please feel free to head to Patreon or buymeacoffee.com, where you can contribute your support for the podcast in exchange for some bonus content, ranging from as little as $1 donations to really anything you like. Every bit of support is greatly appreciated, and it means I can continue to bring you more great episodes in the future. This podcast is created and researched completely independently, so your contribution would really help this podcast continue on. This week, I would like to personally thank John Perrier and an anonymous contributor for pledging their support to the podcast. Once again, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I'm your host Adam Hampton, and this is Lyrics of Their Life.